Saint Gianna Mola once said, love and sacrifice are closely linked, like the sun and the light. We cannot love without suffering, and we cannot suffer without love. Welcome to the 83rd episode of St. Dimphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to commit to showing sacrificial love to those around us who are suffering, to be willing to enter into their suffering even just a little bit. It's the kind of love that can change the world. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, I received a question that I thought would be fun for us to explore. Is a therapist supposed to avoid giving personal opinions during therapy? I feel like some of what my therapist tells me is strictly his opinion versus psychological theory or evidence-based practice. I think I've talked before about my experience in grad school where we were taught by one of our professors that a good therapist leaves who they are at the door and enters the therapy session as a completely blank slate. One who holds no judgment, has no opinions, and is open to leading the person seeking help to wherever they want to go without really giving them an answer or leading them to a conclusion. Thankfully, I had another professor who debunked this idea because once I got into actually working in therapy with people, I realized that while the first professor had good intentions, they were asking for something that wasn't possible or really helpful for the therapeutic relationship at all. Here's the thing. Should a therapist give all of their personal opinions about things and tell you what the best thing to do is based on the conclusions they've come to in their own life? No, not really. They shouldn't. But can a relationship actually build between a therapist and a person seeking help if the therapist holds back who they are or only shares things that come out of the latest evidence-based journals? Again, no. And that's kind of the key here. A good therapist has to learn how to be their authentic self within the context of the therapeutic relationship And be sure to be on guard for just giving people advice. A therapist shouldn't be someone who tells you what to do, like a highly paid parent or something like that, sharing the wisdom of their years. But they should be able to be open and honest in their responses to what bring you to the session. And to use that experience both in therapy uh, and life to help you find the best way forward. As an example, if you came to see me for therapy and shared a conversation you had that didn't go the way you wanted, would it be more helpful for me as a therapist to A, only stick to evidence-based psychological interventions like just saying, it sounds like reflective listening may be a good approach here, let's practice. Or is it more helpful for me to say something like, it sounds like what you said was a bit harsh or at least that it was received in a way that you weren't intending. What's another way you could have said it? If I think what you said was harsh, that would be my opinion, of course, but it's my objective opinion as someone standing outside of the situation, and sometimes we need to hear that from a therapist. We need to hear the authentic reaction to what we're presenting because it can help us to be open to another way of looking at what happened. It can help us shift our understanding of our situation and move toward approaching things in a healthier manner. All of this, of course, can only be done once a therapist and a person seeking help have formed a relationship with trust and understanding and always have to be done in a way that makes sure that the therapist isn't the one with the spotlight on them in the session, isn't making it about them or their thoughts and opinions. I hope that makes sense. 
On to the next topic. The actress Kristen Bell has shared about her experiences with mental health, both as an individual and as a couple with her husband. And I love to highlight stuff like this. So let's go to USA Today for more. I know that I present some as someone who is bubbly all the time and happy, and a lot of the time I am, because I have really good tools, Bell, 40, told Self in an interview published Monday. But there are definitely days when the alarm goes off and I go, no, I'm staying right here, nothing's worth it. I'm just going to stay in this cocoon because I need to, because I feel very, very, very vulnerable. Bell said that she has dealt with anxiety and depression since she was 18, exacerbated by the challenges of COVID-19. Quote, I have trouble distinguishing between my emotions and someone else's emotions, and that's not a compliment to myself. That's a very dangerous thing to toy with, she said, noting that the deluge of bad news prompted by a mental zone that wasn't healthy for my family to be around. She and her husband, Dax Shepard, enrolled in couples therapy in early 2020 after feeling like they were just at each other's throats and faced hardships again last fall when Shepard, who'd been sober from alcohol and cocaine for 16 years, relapsed with prescription pain pills following a motorcycle accident. You know, it's always a good thing to see someone in the popular culture talking about mental health, couples therapy, recovery from emotional difficulties, and really to be doing it in a way that doesn't put a filter over it. Kristen and Dax and their children have obviously been through a lot, but to see their commitment to couples therapy and working toward getting healthy again, it's just so encouraging. So here's to hoping their witness will encourage others to reach out for help and that all of our sharing about our mental and emotional well-being will help bring an end to mental health stigma in our world. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to St. Francis of Paola. Born in 1416, the saint who would become known as Francis the Fire Handler was the first child born to parents who had been childless for many years after their marriage. They turned to St. Francis of Assisi for help and named their firstborn child after him. Two other children would follow after Francis. While still a newborn, Francis suffered a swelling which endangered his eyesight, and his parents turned again to Francis of Assisi, promising that if their son survived his first year, he would be given to one of the friaries of the Franciscan order. He recovered and entered the friary, and after a year, he went on to a pilgrimage to Assisi, and after he returned, he lived in a cave on his father's estate in complete solitude. He eventually moved to a more secluded cave, devoting himself to prayer and mortification. In 1435, two friends came and joined him, prompting him to build three small rooms and a chapel in the cave, and just like that, a new order had begun. The order was called the Hermits of St. Francis, or the Minim Friars, referring to their role as the least among the faithful. They took vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, and veganism. Disciples flocked to the order, and eventually seven monasteries had to be built. News of his holiness and miracles spread, and eventually King Louis XI of France asked him to come visit him while he was in the last stages of a serious illness. Francis refused until the Pope himself ordered him to go. Francis cured the sick all along the way, but didn't cure the king. He stayed with him until his death, and eventually was asked to stay in France for his counsel and direction. He died in 1507 at the age of 91 while the Passion according to St. John was being read aloud to him. There are so many cool legends associated with Francis, including bringing a lamb back to life while it was being roasted and eaten, using his cloak as a boat to float across the sea, 
And this one about a trout that comes from Wikipedia that I just had to share. Francis had a favorite trout that he called Antonella. One day, one of the priests who provided religious services saw the trout swimming about in his pool, and to him it was just a delicious dish, so he caught it and took it home, tossed it into the frying pan. Francis missed Antonella and realized what had happened. He asked one of his followers to go to the priest to get it back. The priest, annoyed by his great concern for a mere fish, threw the cooked trout on the ground, shattering it into several pieces. The hermit sent by Francis gathered up the broken pieces in his hands and brought them back to Francis. Francis placed the pieces back in the pool and looking up to heaven and praying said, Antonella, in the name of charity, return to life. The trout immediately became whole and swam joyously around the pool as if nothing had happened. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Lord God, by whom the holy are exalted and St. Francis was raised to share in the glory of the saints, let his prayer and example bring us the reward you have promised to the humble. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter Therapy. Andrea gets us started. Can you talk about childhood emotional neglect, CEN? Is this a real diagnosis or something a therapist made up to sell their own books and treatment plan? I feel like it explains a lot of my own upbringing and may explain why I struggle to experience or understand my own emotions. Is there a treatment option for adults who feel like they never sufficiently developed emotionally? Let's start by joining in prayer together for Andrea, for everyone who found themselves in a situation where trusted adults failed to help them develop emotionally and for hope and peace moving forward. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let's start, as we always do, with some definitions, and we'll begin with TLHcounseling.com. Childhood emotional neglect, CEN, happens when your parents fail to respond enough to your emotions as they raise you. When you grow up this way, you automatically block your feelings off as a child trying to cope with implicit messages in your childhood home. While With your emotions walled off, you go through your adolescence and adulthood lacking full access to potent, vital ingredients from within your emotions which should be motivating directing connecting stimulating and empowering you when you're living in this way it's hard to see the problem or even that there is a problem most children in emotionally neglectful homes have no idea that anyone should be noticing their feelings validating them or responding to them then when they grow into adults they continue to have no idea yet as an adult who grew up with emotional neglect you surely may sense that something is not quite right with you but you don't know what it is back to me to answer your question of is this an actual diagnosis the answer would be no however in the back of the dsm-5 the fifth edition of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders where mental health diagnoses are cataloged and described there is a brief section called other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention we call them v codes because of the diagnostic coding and while they aren't mental disorders per se they are things that we have to consider and one of those is child psychological abuse which may cover CEN. Consider this description from Psychology Today. 
When parents treat children's emotions as unimportant, not valid, excessive, or of lesser importance than other issues, they neglect the child emotionally. Some phrases that may be familiar to you if you were a victim of childhood emotional neglect include, you don't really feel that way, it wasn't that bad, it's not worth getting upset about, stop being so dramatic. So while it may not be an actual diagnosis, it is definitely a very real thing that leaves us as adults finding it difficult to find peace. We'll stay with psychology today for some thoughts on finding healing. Number one, learn to recognize your emotions. If your parents treated your emotions like they weren't valid or essential, you may have trouble as an adult identifying what you feel or knowing how to behave when difficult emotions arise. Without feelings, decision-making is almost impossible. How we feel drives our choices. What we do, where we go, who we spend time with, and even what we eat are decisions made through emotion. They tell us how to feel about our world, others, and ourselves. Number two, identify your needs and ask others to meet them. You deserve to have your needs met just like anyone else does. Start small by asking for things that should be easy to achieve. For example, ask for a hug from your best friend or partner when you're sad, or after a few moments of quiet when you get home from work after a hard day. Number three, find a therapist. A therapist can't undo your childhood or erase mistakes your parents made, but they can provide you with the emotional toolkit your parents didn't. A good therapist can help you identify your emotions, ask for what you need, learn to trust others, build self-esteem, handle rejection, build self-love, and more. We'll be praying for you. Anonymous is up next. My daughter is 19 years old and has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, BPD. I understand that one of the symptoms they state for BPD is reckless behavior and promiscuity. I had a talk with her as I took her to work this morning, letting her know that I don't judge her and I have an idea of what she's going through because I too struggle with these same issues when I was younger. So I pray for her every day. Any other advice or help you could offer, I would really appreciate. It's so hard to watch her make the same mistakes I made when I was younger. So let's join in prayer together for Anonymous, their daughter, and everyone living with borderline personality disorder, that they may find peace, comfort, and community in the relationships with those around them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you so much for sending this question in and wanting to help your child. It's a great witness to all of us. Again, let's start with definitions, especially because borderline personality disorder is one of those mental health situations that has been pushed into the mainstream conversation without a great understanding of what it's actually like. Verywellmind.com helps us sketch out the criteria. BPD is a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image, and emotion, as well as marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. Chronic feelings of emptiness, emotional instability in reactions to day-to-day -day events, like Intense episodic sadness, irritability, or anxiety lasting a few hours and only rarely more than a few days. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Identity disturbance with markedly or persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. For example, an ever-shifting idea of who we are or how we would describe ourselves to others. Impulsive behavior in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, like spending, sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating. Inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, 
like frequent displays of temper, constant anger, recurrent physical fights. Pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by extremes between idealization and devaluation. This is also known as splitting. Recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, or threats, or self-harming behavior. Transient stress-related paranoid ideation, meaning feeling like people are out to get you. Or severe dissociative symptoms, meaning losing touch with reality or the present moment. So I'll allow helpguide.org to take that diagnostic criteria and put it into real language for us. If you have borderline personality disorder, you probably feel like you're on a roller coaster and not just because of your unstable emotions or relationships, but also the wavering sense of who you are. Your self-image, goals, and even your likes or dislikes may change frequently in ways that feel confusing and unclear. People with borderline personality disorder tend to be extremely sensitive. Some describe it as having an exposed nerve ending. Small things can trigger intense reactions, and once upset, you have trouble calming down. It's easy to understand how this emotional volatility and inability to self-soothe leads to relationship turmoil and impulsive, even reckless behavior. Back to me. Before I went on, I wanted to share the flip side of this diagnosis, the strengths of those living with borderline personality disorder, and they include but are not limited to resilience, a strong sense of empathy and compassion, curiosity, boldness, creativity, a good intuition, and being passionate and protective of those they love. The good news is there is hope. A type of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy has been shown to be effective at helping those living with borderline personality disorder to take control of their emotions and their lives. As far as how you can help at home, in addition to your prayers, let's start with remembering that you have to take care of yourself first and foremost. Avoid the temptation to isolate, get out and enjoy your life, and try and find a support group for family members of those with BPD. Take care of your own physical health and even consider looking into your own therapy. Next, the three C's rule as spelled out by Help Guide. Many family members often feel guilty and blame themselves for the destructive behavior or person uh, of the person with borderline personality disorder. You may question what you did to make the person so angry, think you somehow deserve the abuse, or feel responsible for any failure or relapse in treatment. But it's important to remember that you're not responsible for another person. The person with BPD is responsible for their own actions and behaviors. The three C's are, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. Boundary setting is also vitally important. Help guide shares calmly reassure the person with borderline personality disorder when setting limits. Say something like, I love you and I want our relationship to work, but I can't handle the stress caused by your behavior and I need you to make this change for me. Make sure everyone in the family agrees on the boundaries and how to enforce the consequences if they're ignored. Think of setting boundaries as a process rather than a single event. Instead of hitting your loved one with a long list of boundaries all at once, introduce them gradually one or two at a time. The last thing I wanted to share is the importance of taking self-destructive behaviors and suicidal threats seriously. There can be a tendency to write off these kind of behaviors with one's diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, but in relation to the idea of setting boundaries, everyone in the family should agree that these symptoms will be taken seriously and crisis interventions such as calling a mental health crisis team or even 911 if needed will be put into action should suicidal threats be made. Hang in there and know that we're praying for you. 
Catherine brings us on home. I'm a very devout Catholic and come from a family of strong faith. I'm in my mid-30s and had thought I would be permanently single. To my great and unexpected joy, I've fallen in love with a wonderful man who wants to marry me. Here's where the plot thickens. I have a treatment-resistant major depressive disorder. I'm currently on the max dose of venlafaxine, that's Effexor for those playing at home, and lithium. I've been a detained inpatient before, and while I hope not, it's likely I will be again in the future. At my worst, I've made very serious attempts on my own life. To add to this, I have the first-degree family history of all of the following, completed suicide, postpartum depression, requiring ECT, that's uh, electroconvulsive shock therapy, and a per- uh, psychosis, perpetual psychosis. I would love to marry this man, but I'm very aware of the real risks that any child I might conceive uh, would bring into our lives. My depressive disorder has caused me an enormous amount of great pain and continue to do so daily. Morally, it feels unacceptable to pass on such a high risk to any child. How do I square this? If I get married and don't use contraception as per the Catholic Church, I fear I'm doing something terribly wrong. If I use contraception, the church says I'm doing something terribly wrong, and I don't know what to do. Let's all stop what we're doing for a moment, please, and pray for Catherine, for peace, consolation, guidance, and for Christ to come close to her during this moment of difficulty. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother, to thee do I come. Before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. First off, I just want to say what a blessing it is that you've been open to reaching out for help and have found some peace thanks to the helping professionals in your life. I really hope that our prayers will give you some comfort, and I truly hope that recovery is ever-present in your life. What you've brought up here is a serious question that many of us have considered, but in your situation, I understand how difficult this can be. It's a blessing that you've met this wonderful man, but of course, it brings heartache to think about the options that you have in front of you. Heartbreak over the idea of having a child who may possibly experience depression and pain and suffering that you know all too well. And heartbreak over the idea that you may not have children, even if it's for a good reason. I feel compelled to say this, no one can tell you if or when it's the right time for you to bring children into this world. I understand as Catholics, we're called to be open to life. Since this is so countercultural, many of us take this message to the extreme and try to enforce a stricter meaning than what the church actually calls us to do. But let me be very clear saying this, God understands your heart, understands everything you're thinking about as you enter into this new chapter of your life, and God gets it. He knows your fears, your anxiety, your desires, and he loves you no matter what. While it's worth noting that mental health diagnoses aren't a 100% sure bet to pass down to our children, I know you're also worried about the possibility of needing to stop or change medication when you become pregnant and how that might impact you, in addition to the understanding that depression can have an impact on how you and a baby may connect with each other. And all of that is so difficult to have on your shoulders as you consider how to move forward. I'm sure that this wonderful man who's come into your life is the best person to talk this out with. And that like God, he will be infinitely understanding of the path you need to take moving forward here. Especially if when you talk about this, you remember to be honest with each other and open to the fact that your thoughts, feelings, and attitudes might change over time. 
And since this is a Catholic podcast, be sure to find some quiet moments to reach out to God and seek his inspiration for how best to move forward. He cares about you, and he's really, really there to help. Just know that we'll be praying for you, and we'll be thinking about you, and you will always be a beloved child of God. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.